Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, we'll read the word of the Lord together this morning, if you'll stand. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Father, we thank you that your gospel has reached all the way to our generation. Lord, that we are here transformed by your Holy Spirit because your word was faithfully shared Your word brought about more and more growth, not only on an individual basis, Lord, but it continued to bear fruit in new and different people. Lord, we thank you that your word, your gospel, applies not only to us, but to all in this world, that all who turn to Jesus as their Savior, all who surrender their lives to his call can and will be saved. Father, I pray that we would not forget the joy of your salvation. That we would not forget the power of the gospel. Lord, that we would not, in our own strength, try to bring others to salvation. But Lord, we would share the truth of the gospel. And let your Holy Spirit bring forth fruit. Lord, we pray for Joel and those in his family who aren't feeling well. We just pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to his body and preservation to them. Thank you that you are a God who heals. Lord, we pray for those today who are mourning the loss of their children in Texas. Lord, especially... Those without hope, I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to see their need for Christ, Lord, that they would run to you. And those who are believers there, I pray, Lord, that they would be a light to their neighbors and how they deal with the loss of loved ones. Lord, I pray that we, the church here in this nation, would wake up. They began to see the need for the gospel to go out because, Lord, these things are a sign of people who have no hope. We need you, Lord. Transform our hearts this morning. Cause your word to find root in our souls. Or be with the kids as well, Lord, that they would hear your word and it would be a beginning of fruit in their lives. Help us, Lord, to bring forth fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So this morning's message is entitled, Harvest 
thankfulness. Harvest thankfulness. And in this message, we will break it up into three parts. First, we'll talk about Paul's constant thankfulness. It wasn't just a one-time experience. It was every time he thought and prayed for the people in Colossae. Next, we'll look at the proof of a harvest. What it is that shows that a harvest is true. And finally, we'll see how the harvest is abundant. So as we start here in verse 3, we see Paul saying this to them. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. The word order is actually a little bit different in the original Greek text. And so it's, we always give thanks to God. He's always giving thanks. It's a constant process for him. He's not just doing it when it's popular or when people, everyone else is. This, the word always is modifying not um, prayer, but it's modifying the giving of thanks. So he's always giving in thanks when he prays for the church at Colossae. But, but is he giving thanks to them, the people of Colossae? Are they the, the source of his constant thankfulness? No, it's God. Why? Because God is the source of their salvation. It is not in themselves. Paul isn't giving thanks to Epaphras. Oh, I'm so thankful that Epaphras was able to save you. He's thankful to Epaphras, but his, his thankfulness for their salvation is to God alone. Because God is the one who brings forth the harvest. Remember, Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians says, I watered, or I planted, Apollos watered, and God gives the increase. The harvest is the Lord's. And so when we are praying in gratitude for the salvation of the lost, maybe we're praying for another church. Maybe we're praying for our loved ones who are following Christ. Our gratitude should be to God for His work in their lives. And I have a, I have a thought in that. When we're praying for people who have come to Christ what is our first prayer? What is it that we pray constantly? The Paul, he says he constantly gives thanks to God when he prays for them. How often do we do that? This is convicting to me. You know, oftentimes I'll hear a prayer request and I'll pray for that person, but only for their needs, not for a not a gratitude to God that they're even His. So our constant thankfulness is to God alone. It's not to the person who has come to Christ, though we are, we are overjoyed that God has allowed them to come to grace and turn to Him. But our thanks is to God. 
and it's, it is constant. This formula of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is, this is strong theological argument. Especially in light of the errors we talked about last week. He is, from the beginning of this book, though he hasn't got to the, the reason for his writing, he is laying out a foundation so that they go back and look, oh, he said God, Jesus is the Son of the Father, our God. What's he doing? He's, he's saying, look, Jesus is God. God did not need to come to us in different ways. Remember we talked about emanations. And that's why there was worship of angels. No, God sent His only Son, the Word made flesh. So this is not an accident that Paul here is saying, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not one of the fathers, He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So He is making it clear to us that Jesus is God in the flesh, given to us. How often are we praying like this? It's, again, a a convicting thing to me, just thinking of those who I know who are following Christ, and then thinking about those that I'm seeing walking away from God, whether it's people we know and we're seeing things on Facebook and it it concerns our hearts, or it's loved ones who have at one point in time claimed Christ, but now their lives do not reflect any fruit. We should always go to God with thanksgiving that those who we are praying for, who have physical, spiritual, emotional, mental needs, who are following Christ, we should be grateful that God even saved them. So that's our first admonition, I believe, from this text that we learn from the Apostle Paul to give thanks always for those who are walking with God. Next, we see a proof of a harvest. A proof of a harvest. Paul is using this metaphor of a harvest, I believe, right? Because he says in verse 5, or really verse 6 is when he brings the full metaphor in, constantly bearing fruit. This is the idea of bringing in a harvest, a, a harvest of souls, Jesus uses those words, right? He says, the fields are white for the harvest. Pray that God would send forth laborers. There are many in our world who need to hear the gospel. But if we are unwilling to go outside of these doors with the truth of God's word, because we're afraid of rejection, afraid of Mocking and ridicule. 
afraid that we will lose our job or afraid that we'll lose friends or maybe our family members won't want to be around us anymore. If we go out of here and we treat the gospel in that way, then it's very likely we have no fruit. Because look at what he says in verse 4. He says, since... He begins with since here, and this is really important because this is a location in time. It's like a time stamp. So since when? Since we heard of your faith. So when Paul, likely from Epaphras, heard about the faith of the church in Colossae, this is when he began to pray in gratitude to God. It says, since we heard of your faith. A lot of people like to stop there, right? We hear expressions like, everybody needs faith, you got to have faith, right? Have you heard those expressions used? It's, it's kind of like, we, we have it like a, count, a, a, a um, component of a balanced life. It's like another charm on your bracelet. You know, having faith means you're okay. But the truth is faith has no intrinsic value. It, it's not, has, it has no value in itself. It's where your faith is placed. Because what was going on here in Colossae? They had followed a different belief system. They were following a false gospel, so their, their faith was in the wrong place. They weren't walking in Christ anymore. They were walking in the ways of this world. And I don't think it's an accident that, that Paul immediately says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, not since we heard about you walking after this world and the, this pre-Gnostic or Essene type of Christianity that rejects the gospel. This faith is a faith that makes Jesus Christ its object. That's one way we can see this. Another way we can see this faith is in our own lives, how we live when we become Christians. So it's not just that the object of our faith is Christ, but we are actually living in the power of Christ by faith. Does that make sense? When you get up, is your faith in your own ability to beat sin, or is your faith in Christ Jesus? Are you waking up in the morning saying, Lord, I know I'm, I'm about to face trials, temptations, struggles, but I am in you. I will turn to you. You will be my way of escape. That's faith in Christ as well. It's not just making Christ the object of your faith, but making Him the realm and the, the sphere in which you live. I think the Apostle Paul can be addressing both of those things in this faith. Faith is always a sign. 
faith in Christ, living in Christ, and making Christ the object of our faith is an absolute sign of harvest in our own souls, that we are fruitful. It is a fruit of God, a fruit of the Spirit. But it's not just that. If you are walking in Christ Jesus, if you have placed your faith and God in through His Holy Spirit has quickened faith in you to trust Jesus, not only with your salvation, but in your daily life, what will happen? Well, it's going to lead to love. But for what? What does he say? He says, and the love which you have for yourself. Is that what it says? That might be... uh, that might be the new version, but that's not what it says. What does it say? And love which you have for whom? All the saints. Now, is, this, is he talking about the icons you can see at the Catholic Church or the Orthodox? He's talking about those saints? The ones who've had miracles done in, supposedly in their name and they've been canonized by a church? No, he's, who's he talking about? Well, look back at verse 2. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. He's talking about them. But not just that, their love for all those who are following Jesus. It's, it's important for us as believers to realize that faith in Christ will always lead for lead to love for other believers not because you like them naturally speaking but because God has changed your heart and he's changed theirs and though they are struggling though they are different than you maybe they really irritate you You love them because Christ has loved you and has loved them. You don't get to decide which fruit you get to hang out with. You don't get to decide which which silo of harvest. You get thrown in there. You know, they may have come over from the cornfield five miles down the road, but you all get put in the same silo. Maybe they... maybe. Maybe you're in the soybean silo. You're like, man, I'd really like to hang out with the corn. I don't want to be in this silo with the with the soybeans. I'm a soybean, but corn are so much more fun to hang out with. God hasn't called us to just love those who we we gravitate towards. He's calling us to love all His saints. That's what they are doing. That that's how Paul knows that their faith is real. Because their faith is so founded in Christ that when they live their daily life, they can't help but love one another. They can't help but love not only the church in Colossae, most likely they have relationship with the church in Laodicea. It's not that far away. The church in Hierapolis, and likely they have somewhat of a relationship with the church in Ephesus. But they're, they're constantly loving all the saints. They're not just... Some of them. You know, I can love those three. Those, mm, those are easy. 
true salvation and true faith is is and will always lead to a love for the brethren first. Not exclusively, because when Paul says all the saints, I would be willing to say, he also means those who will come to Christ. Those who have not yet come. Saints here is holy ones, faithful ones. That means, had we lived in this time, they would have loved us. I know it's hard to believe that they would love me, but they would have loved even us. Kent Hughes said this about faith. He said, faith in what? In reincarnation? That God is good? Faith in faith? Salvation does not come by believing in belief or even in a set of doctrines or a creed. Salvation comes by believing in Christ. And when you believe what Christ said, when Christ said, remember he says, they will know you have been with me by your love for one another. This is why it... I don't know how to explain it. It really bothers me when believers can't get along. That's why I hate church splits. That's why I hate dissension. Not because we shouldn't stand for truth, because I do believe that, and we'll, we'll see that here. But we as believers should love one another, not be seeking to destroy one another and hoping, well, they did that to me, so they deserve. No. We should be merciful because we deserve far worse for what we did and who we were before Christ transformed our lives. It's interesting when John G. Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides, he was trying to figure out how to describe our next section. And he said, here, because what is the, what's the result of faith and love? Well, we have it here. And it's hope. It is from hope that faith and love spring. It's like hope is the fertilizer that brings and causes faith and love to grow. Absolutely, our walk with God begins in faith, but hope is something when you believe it is true, then you begin to have faith in it. And because you have that hope... You can love the unlovable. Love the ones that no one else wants to be around. He says, because, where he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because, this is a ground statement. When you see because, it's just as similar as for. 
The reason that they have faith in Christ Jesus and the reason that they hope or they love is of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's interesting, this picture of laid up. A treasure laid up. And this is where John G. Patton comes in because he says, he translates this idea of laid as lean your whole weight upon it. You're, just like that faith, it, you put your whole weight on Christ. You're not just hoping that it works. You're putting everything you have in it. You know that, that whole expression, don't, don't count your chickens before they hatch or... Um, you know, don't put all your what's the, what's the expression of eggs in one basket. Why? What's the what, why do they why do we say that? What if you drop the basket and you lose lose them all? Well, here that expression should never work. As Christians, our entire hope, all our eggs should be in the basket of Christ Jesus. Our hope should be in heaven, not in this world. We have a treasure hidden for us where moth and rust cannot destroy. Well, that's, that's if that's our hope. Because Christ is in heaven. He is our hope. He is the reason heaven is so beautiful. He is the reason we want to go to heaven because we want to spend eternity with God the Father, God the Son and God, the Holy Spirit. Heaven would not be what it is if God was not there. Because a place without God is hell. It's the only place where it says God will completely shut Himself out of. An eternity without God, that's what hell is. And I know some would not agree with that. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. I alluded to this already, but Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 20. It says, let's start with verse 19, because I quoted this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This idea of storing up is the same as laying up. Where? Again, he says, where neither moth nor dust rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our hope, all that we look forward to is in heaven, 
then no matter what happens on this earth, we cannot be destroyed. They may be able to take our lives. They may take our family. They may take all that we have. But if our hope is in heaven, if it is stored in heaven, it doesn't matter which thief comes, how rusty your car is, or if your all the clothes in your closet got eaten up by moths. You may have nothing good to wear. A car that's waiting to fall apart on the road. And had everything in your house stolen by a thief. But there's still hope. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Because our treasure is in a vault that cannot be accessed by the things of this world. This hope is Jesus. It is what the gospel proclaims. And look at this in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. This is another aspect of hope that I think we sometimes forget. Titus 2, verse 11. He's talking in verse 10 about deceivers. Uh, This sounds very similar to Colossians, right? Those who are saying a lot of things, but in reality they're saying nothing. They're void. They're, They're rebellious men. And he says, who must be silenced because, why? They are upsetting whole families. They're seeking to destroy the church. Teaching things that should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. What, they're... They're doing it all for themselves. They don't care about Jesus. Their treasure isn't in heaven. Their treasure is in their own bellies. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Does this sound like the gospel? What if I change that to any number of people, groups? What if I said that about Latinos or white people or black people or name the group? Would that sound like the gospel? Because this sounds like another gospel. This is a gospel that says Cretans can't come to Christ. That soil, yeah, those, those guys don't have soil that the gospel can take root in. It's essentially what they're saying. He says, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. That's not the gospel. And and then look at uh, chapter 2, also verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to, to who? To some men? What does your Bible say? All? I, I don't know. I mean, 
Maybe the Greek's wrong there. Maybe it should be like a portion. No, all men. Is he saying that every single man in the world is going to come to Christ? No, what he's saying is the gospel is universal. The grace of God does not pick ethnicity. The grace of God does not pick somebody because they're better than someone else. He doesn't base it on, oh, well, your economic standing is too high, or your economic standing is too low, or maybe you have middle class, you can't be a believer. No, the gospel is for all men. It is not for a particular person. What does it do? It says, in instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What are we, why? Looking for the blessed hope. What's that hope? That hope that's in heaven. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This hope that we have will spring up in godly living. When we have hope in Jesus, it will lead to love and faith. So we have those arrows pointing from hope. Because if it is truly in the storehouses of our heart, if if hope is treasured in Christ, then it will lead to love for others. It will lead to righteous living. And you say, oh, I'm not sure that's... Good enough. Well, look with me, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. He's talking about teachers, and this is, this is a hard verse to take when you're preaching on a regular basis. Well, actually, I'm at the wrong, almost read the wrong passage. Three, verse 2. He says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see what happens? When you have a hope in Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, when that hope is fixed in your heart, when it is solid, it's not going anywhere, it transforms your life. And that's why the gospel is so powerful. The gospel is powerful because when the gospel takes root in our heart, it transforms us so completely that all we want to do is to live for Jesus. And we want others to know about Him because He has so transformed us. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Because this hope that we have stored up in heaven transforms us. It causes our faith to grow because we begin to see God's Word come to life in our life. Why? Because we're, we're being purified. We're, we're taking His Word and we're applying it to our lives and, and we're loving 
our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're seeing God's work in our lives. We're seeing the truth of God's Word grow. And so our faith in Christ and our walk with Christ grows. Do we have this kind of proof in our own lives? Do we as a church, or are we, can we say that we have faith, hope, faith and love that is springing out of hope? It's as though hope is fertilizing the seed of the gospel. Is that true in our lives as a, as a church? That's a, that's a difficult thing to, to answer for us. I, myself, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. But do we love those who are unlovable in the church? Not because we, we're, we're defining them as unlovable, but God hasn't. Murray Harris said this, he said, Hope is the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come. It's pretty all-encompassing. That's what is in heaven for us. Our hope of heaven. Our hope of all that God has promised. But it doesn't just affect The afterlife, it affects this life. And it is proven in our love for one another. If we believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives, then we better love one another. And I'm not saying that as a command to you, but that's what he says. This isn't optional. Do we dread being around other believers? Not saying that there's people that God is still doing a work in them and He's still doing a work in you and you still struggle. But we should be asking God, Lord, I am thankful, like Paul, that You have saved them. I am thankful, Lord, that You're doing a work in their lives. Change my heart towards them. You don't think Paul had a struggle in when he heard some of the things that were going on in Colossae, like, I can't believe those guys are believing this. But he was exhibiting his love for them by praying. But he's so thankful for the harvest that God is bringing in their souls. He's seeing the fruit of their salvation, the fruit of the gospel seed being planted in their souls. So we've seen the proof of the harvest, and now we're going to see a universal harvest. That abundance of harvest. It's an overabundance of harvest. He says, in the second half of verse 5, he says, Of which, what's he speaking about? Hope. Of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. It's interesting, this this expression is 
quite different. It, do you see there's an article in front of truth and an article in front of gospel? That's in the original. It's not just a truth. This is the truth. This is the only truth. What is Paul arguing? He's saying you need to throw this false religion out of your church. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth. The gospel that Epaphras has taught you is the truth. What you heard from him. That hope that you heard about and you now believe and it's, it's leading to a love for other saints. You know that, that when you became a Christian... What Epaphras taught you? Not this so-called truth that these false teachers are spreading. Paul is already addressing the error right here. It's subtle. It's very subtle. But I don't think we can miss it. He's not saying the truth so that they, they think, Oh yeah, my truth... You know, you find your truth and I'll find my truth. Is that what Paul's saying? No. When he says the truth, the gospel, guess what? The gospel is defining what the truth is. He's, he's telling them what he means when he says the truth. He's saying the gospel, not a, a, another false religion. This good news is what transformed their life. It's what gospel means. It, it is what transformed them, not what these false teachers are trying to bring in, this false doctrine that's being spread around. Maybe there was a book. Oh, they weren't books like that yet. But maybe there was a scroll going around and it was, you know, this teaching. Isn't that how a lot of error enters the church today? Some terrible, terrible, terrible books. I've read some bad ones. One, I only finished it so I could see the full <laughs> ludicrousy of what they were writing. There were That's the thing. This one book I'm thinking about, I would never recommend it to someone, but there are some good truths in it. Actual truths, based on God's Word. But that's the problem. The devil doesn't throw truth at you as though it's... He's going to allow some fragments of truth because your antennas are up for complete falsehood. Even as even believers who aren't walking closely with the Lord have enough discernment that they're not going to fall for complete lies. But as long as the devil puts just enough truth in it, then a lot of people will be, Oh, wow, this is so amazing. I should start doing yoga. This person... <laughs> that I was reading, that was one of their things. I was like, what in the world? What I found out in that book was this guy was embracing a lot of Eastern mysticism. Hmm. <laughs> what? We have that same problem today that they had in Colossae? They're trying to find themselves in everywhere but Christ Jesus? Paul is being clear when he says, previously heard. 
He is making sure that they realize he's not talking about the new stuff they're hearing. He's talking about what they originally heard and what brought them to faith in Christ. This truth, this gospel contains the hope that they are holding on to. This is the true message. It's not a false message. It is the true message. It is the gospel. It is the truth that is above all other truths. It is the truth upon which we must base our lives. The gospel is the foundation of our Christian life. That's why it's so important for us as believers to know what the gospel is. To not be led astray and to think like these begin to believe that maybe we need to have some asceticism in our life. Maybe we need to, to beat ourselves and, and hurt our physical bodies so that we can actually be closer to God. That's not the gospel. That's a false doctrine. The same reason that I am adamantly opposed to liberation theology. Because that theology believes that until all men have exact equal standing in society, then the gospel can't be effective. That is baloney. The early church was marked by the fact that even slave owners and slaves worshipped God together. That did not happen anywhere else other than the early church. And that's why people didn't like it, because it disrupted the societal structure. That Cretans and barbarians and Scythians and all these people would hang out together because Jesus saved them? What are you thinking? That's how the early church was looked at. The gospel first went to them. It, it was heard by them. But then the Apostle Paul says this. He says in verse 6, Which has come to you just as in all the world. Wow. So you're telling me that this gospel is not only effective in Colossae, this little bitty town in the Lycus Valley, but this gospel is reaching to all the world. Is Paul saying that all the world has heard the gospel? No, it's a hyperbole. He's What's he trying to say? He is pointing out that the gospel of Jesus Christ has universal appeal and power. Kent Hughes says this, he says, Unlike the Gnostic elitist foolishness, Christ's good news was for everybody and was daily reaching new people. Lightfoot says this, he says, The fruit which the gospel bears without fail in all soils and under every climate is credential. Its verification as against the pretensions of spurious counterfeits. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the gospel will bear fruit 
everywhere. If the gospel does not bear fruit there, then you haven't shared the gospel. He's saying we can define what is truth by God's word, and then we look and say, well, maybe we're trying to transfer something of our own culture instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel will bring forth fruit. We don't need to Latinoize it or, or Africanize it or Asianize it. The gospel is powerful. We don't have to change the gospel. That doesn't mean we, we don't like think of Hudson Taylor who dressed like the Chinese people, ate like the Chinese people. He, he wanted to say, look, I can be a Christian and be Chinese. Not that he was worshiping the Chinese gods. He didn't do that. But his dress and his food was just like the Chinese people. That doesn't mean we don't eat the, the, the food and, and, and try to dress like them. But what he's saying is the content of the gospel does not change. Guess what? In Africa, churches don't look like this. But the gospel is transformed. The church service is different. You better be ready for an all-day affair. And if you go there as an American and a Christian, you may be preaching. <laughs> well, you will be preaching, probably, from what I've heard. But as Christians, we have to divorce from ourselves, well, this is how church should be done. I'm not saying that there are absolute truths we find in the Bible and we should, but Oftentimes, missionaries take the gospel and then they tack on all these traditions of men and then they wonder why the, the culture has no desire or the, the people there have no desire to worship God. Because they're adding to the gospel instead of bringing the gospel as it is shown and letting the Holy Spirit transform the way they worship. I mean... I've seen some of the worship services in Africa. I think I'd like to be a part of those. I don't know. I, I remember the Heimsauce when they would show videos. There's excitement there. there. There's a love for the Lord. Might be a little bit more dancing than we like. A little, little more uh, tribal dancing and, and music. But the gospel has transformed their lives. Just as much in India or, or Asia or, or Latin America. The gospel will spring up in soil of volcano and in the soil of sand and, and clay and in all kinds of soil. The gospel can find root. God does not look upon a group of people and say, well, the gospel can't transform those. No, the gospel is a universal truth. It is the universal truth. That's why the gospel has seen such effective and fruit-bearing change. Because, look at this. Paul says, It has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit. It's, it's continuing to bear fruit and increasing. It's multiplying. What beautiful news we have. It's not only bearing fruit in our own lives, right? right? Bringing love and, and increasing our love for one another, our faith. But it's also being poured out on others. 
I love what Lightfoot says. He says, the gospel is essentially a reproductive organism. 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 Ugh. A plant whose seed is in itself. Just think about those, those plants that put down seed. Or tulips. You know, they, they're the perennials. They don't just die. Maybe the flower goes away, but they come next, back next season. And they, they multiply. I don't know how that, all that works. I don't understand the, the, the bio, biology of plants and how the, they multiply, but that's essentially what the gospel is. It is a, an object that multiplies itself. The problem is when we begin, like these who are teaching error in Colossae, when we begin to add our, our location-specific traditions as though those have to be a part of the gospel that's preached, the gospel that we believe, when we begin to do that, then we rob the gospel of its power. And we rob the gospel of its universal harvest. Because the gospel, first we saw that, you know, it's universally fruitful. It's bringing fruit all over the world. It, wherever it goes is essentially what Paul's saying. But it's also understood where it goes. I say, well, the gospel, you know, it won't be understood there. Well, I've, I've heard story upon story upon story of missionaries who are trying to figure out how to relay the gospel to this people group. I heard one story of a missionary who, he got to this place, and he was sharing the gospel, essentially the death and resurrection of Christ, starting from um, essentially the gospel of, of Christ, one of the gospels. I, can't, I think it was Mark. And he was reading the story of Judas, and he was looking around, and all the people were just excited, just loving Judas. Because their culture loved those conniving people. This was a as this was actually in Papua New Guinea. If I'm if I remember correctly. And so they they Oh, he's so sneaky, he's so sly, he's a great man. And he's like that night he's just at home crying, Lord, how, these people can't know you. There, there's no hope for them. Because there, there's, they love Judas. They love the guy that's a betrayer. How do I make them see Jesus? Well, he found out not long ago about, or not long after, sorry, about this principle to create peace between two warring tribes. You know what it was? The king, or the, the, the chief of the tribe, would send his son to the other tribe to be adopted. And as long as that young man was alive, or that child, their firstborn son, as long as he was alive, those tribes would be at peace. And when he found that out, he's like, wow, the gospel is here. It's just hidden between layers upon layers upon layers. And when, when he described this to these people, 
that whole area, the gospel lit up and the, the seed was planted and these people came to Christ. But he had to find it. There was truth. The problem is it had been so obliterated by Satan and his deception that even in their own culture they had a picture of Christ's love for his people. The gospel does not know a people that it cannot transform. We don't need to add to the gospel to make it more presentable to the world. We need to preach the gospel as it is, just like Epaphras. Because when that happens, the gospel will continue to bring fruit. Lightfoot goes on, he says, The gospel is not like those plants which exhaust themselves in bearing fruit and wither away. We know you know, wheat does that or corn does that. The external growth keeps pace with the reproductive energy. It doesn't die because it's bearing fruit. It actually continues to get stronger and stronger. That's what the gospel does. And he goes on, he says, Since we have heard of your faith, sorry, um, which has come to you just as on the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. Right? He's going back to, remember, you remember the power of the gospel to transform you, to, to bring fruit in your lives? He's reminding them of what God has done before this false teaching came in. This is his prayer. Since the day you heard of it and understood, see this, this understanding? The gospel that was preached in Jerusalem has the same power in the Lycus Valley in this little town of Colossae. And understood the grace of God in truth. If you look at the the writings of Paul, grace of God is synonymous with the gospel. It's almost like the same thing. He's just using different language, but in reality he's saying, when you understood the grace of God, when you understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's when they were transformed. It wasn't when they started hearing this garbage from these false teachers. But he, they didn't just understand the grace of God alone. It's it, the grace of God in truth, or in all its truth. I think that's really important for us. That's, that is, if I can translate this in my own way... Actually, in in the words of Murray Harris, in its genuine simplicity without adulteration. I think that's what he's saying. This truth of God, this grace of God is, is what is in its genuine 
simplicity without adulteration. That's the problem. We, we want to alter the gospel just enough so that it will be more palatable to our neighbors, more palatable to this group of per- people, more palatable that, to that group of people. But the gospel and the core truth of the gospel that Paul has preached faithfully, that Epaphras has shared faithfully, will not find fruit and it will not bear fruit. It may seem to bear fruit at first, but in reality it will end up failing. An altered gospel is a death wish to any church. I believe that with that's why I'm I may I'm I'm not trying to be crass, but referring to error as garbage, that's that's how I feel about it because when we begin to embrace the error of this world, the lies of Satan, even under the skies of Christian books, Christian teaching, when that comes into the church and begins to be what everyone holds true, it will kill the church. Because if the gospel is not the central message that we know and we understand then what we preach will eventually be of no use. We have to get the gospel right. That's what Paul's saying. It's about the supremacy of Christ. That's why this whole series is the supremacy of Christ. If Christ is not our Lord and Savior, if He did not die on the cross and was not raised on the third day physically and spiritually if He did not take the sin that was due us on Himself on the cross, then we have no reason to be here. He did everything, not so that we can live however we want, but so that we can be purified because we have a hope that is set in heaven. He finishes in verse 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, our loved fellow bondservant. You can just hear Paul's love for Epaphras here. He's not speaking about Epaphras as though he's some false teacher. He loves Epaphras because he knows Epaphras. He knows Epaphras loves the saints and he loves the people at Colossae. That's why he said something to Paul. Because he's like, they're not listening to me, Paul, most likely. Can you please write a letter to them to, in, to encourage them to, to throw this false doctrine out? Who is, speaking of Epaphras, a faithful servant of Christ on, your, on our behalf? So he's serving Christ faithfully for you all. And what is he? He sends, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. That's how Paul knew about them in the first place. He wouldn't have known about the church in Colossae if Epaphras hadn't told him. And he wouldn't have known of the problems that he's about to address more specifically and, and at their face value if Epaphras hadn't shared it. And this is a, a charge for us. When we begin to see brothers and sisters in Christ embracing error, we need to pray 
fervently for them and ask God how to address what they're beginning to believe. We can't just sit back and say, well, I had a feeling that would happen to them. That's not loving. Letting people just fall away in error, that's not loving. That's, that's embracing sin. That's embracing, you might as well just say, well, in ten years I'm going to do the same thing. Because the fruit of the gospel will result in love for your brothers and sisters. I know it's hard to confront error. And it's even harder to confront error in the right spirit and with the right attitude. But I know that if we go to God with a heart like Paul, right? Paul is about to address the error that the church in Colossae is is trying to embrace. But do you see here? He is constantly, even though he knows these errors are going on, he's constantly giving thanks to God that they have come to Christ. And he's praying that God would preserve them from this error, not that they would be thrown away in it. So, what do we have to celebrate? Right? Paul is celebrating their faithfulness. We don't see anything in here specifically negative, saying, oh, you all do this bad. And No, this is all a, a prayer of thanksgiving. But Paul will eventually address him, and, and, and what do we have to be thankful for? Well, first, we're, we're called saints, right? If we are faithfully following God, if we have been set apart and, being, and are being purified because of the hope we have in Christ, we're saints. We also have a Heavenly Father. Right? That same Father. We also can pray to Him and giving thanks for one another. This is actually something that I've been contemplating doing here, that we would begin to weekly have a piece of paper for each family and, and, and swap them and pray for one another. I think that would be really, it would bring more unity, I believe, and I believe it would give us more gratitude for one another. So be looking for that. Thirdly, we're in Christ. What a joy. We all are in Christ. If we are a new creation, if we have faith, if God, Christ is the object and the realm in which we live, we are in Christ. What a joy. Just like the church at Colossae, we can walk with God and begin to see fruit that is not only coming forth, but continually, and it's increasing. As, as the gospel went out, it just exploded. It was multiplying. It wasn't just plussing, for a lack of bad grammar. It was multiplying. Thirdly, we have the grace, or fourthly, we have the grace of God to be thankful for, that we're even here, that we're even following Him. I know that is a great joy to my heart, 
That grace is beyond comprehension. Fourthly, we have grace, or fifthly, we have faith and love. As believers, because of the final thing, we have heavenly hope. We have a lot to celebrate today. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have brothers and sisters who love the Lord, and I believe we love one another. Not that we can't grow in that love. The question is, in the end, are we living in constant constant thankfulness? Are we seeing the proof of God's harvest in our own lives? Not just in our, our own spiritual relationship, but in the relationships we have as well. And is the harvest, and are we rejoicing in the harvest that the gospel is bringing in our church, in our community, in our country, in our world? You want to see a transformed world? Share the good news. Because when the, tra- the good news finds root in a soul, it will completely transform that person. And then that will lead to the transformation of others and a love for the brethren. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be thankful for the harvest that you have given us that you have brought us into your fold. And Lord, we want to come into your silos and to love one another. Lord, we don't want to get to the end of our lives and, and stand before you and you say, I never knew you. We want to stand before you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, help us to embrace the truth that is the gospel. That we would not go running after the lies of this world that are being imported onto the gospel and saying, well, this is the gospel. No, Lord, we want to know what your word says the gospel is. And we want to apply it to our lives. And we want to share it with those who have not heard. Give us hearts of thankfulness for one another and for other believers around our country and around our world. Cause us to be grateful, Lord, for the work you have done and not to just dwell on the chaos that we are seeing unfold in our world. Father, we thank you that you have saved many men and women and called them to yourself. May they walk faithfully, Lord, not giving in to error and lies. Lord, go with us today. Help us, Lord, to be thankful.
for the harvest that you are bringing into your storehouses. Cause our hope to be in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you were encouraged this morning. I know just for myself, I really enjoyed studying this section. I I didn't realize you could get so much out of such a, a prayer, but I do believe that as believers, we do see a harvest happening. It it's not, you know, these thousand thousand people revivals that some people want to see. But we should be thankful for the harvest that God is doing in our own lives and the lives of those of this church and and then other churches we know about. We have a lot to be thankful for. And Paul is a prime example of how to be thankful.